This is the Unstoppable Authors Podcast with world-building warrior Angeline Trevina, planning and productivity powerhouse Holly Line, and formatting fireball Julia Scott. Every week we bring you discussions on the craft of writing, author life and business, and interviews with some of the industry's most unstoppable authors. A writer's life doesn't have to be solitary. We're here to bust that myth, support you on your journey, and encourage you to be unstoppable. Hello and welcome to episode 130 of the Unstoppable Authors Podcast. And today I have a very special guest, strengths coach Becca Syme. We had the most candid and enlightening conversation about what she sees in the author community right now. We talked about the wave of burnout, changes in the industry, and what we can do to look after our long-term well-being. Before we get into the interview, here's my personal update. I've had a very good writing week. One of the things I set out to do this year was use the systems that I already know work for me, and one of those is writing sprints with other writers. So I've actually been doing that this week, and uh, funnily enough, I've had my best words week in quite a few months. And I have more co-working coming up in the next couple of days as well, and I'll be going into February, hopefully with some really good momentum. And... I'm going to maintain this and remember to use my systems for the next, you know, 11 months and beyond. So our question of the week last week was, what's a book you've bought just because of the cover? In our Facebook group, Shane said, I recently bought Alpha and Omega by Carol T. Luna just because I liked the cover. And on Instagram, a bit more of a mixed bag. Uh, Edwin said, it may have happened, but I can't think of a single instance where a cover convinced me to pick up a book. As a rule, the cover was always something I'd look at while holding the book between reading periods. The same is true of blurbs. This has kind of changed over the last year as I've been making a deliberate effort to find books that would be a good candidate for comp authors for the purpose of marketing. I've been doing that so much too, and, you know, I've, I've had to just try and read other things as well because I got into a bit of a reading... Uh, not a rut, rut, but I, I was getting a bit bored. Um, but yeah, having to find comp titles can be a bit of a, a drain and, and not not be the best use of our reading time all the time. Uh, but it is an important thing to do. So it's, it's a tough one. Uh, AJ Ross said, Scythe. I don't know who that's by. I'll have to look that up. And Michelle Rubb said, Ugh, so many. Uh, I feel you, Michelle. I have so many books that I just bought because of the cover, and maybe that's why I haven't necessarily read them. Hmm, that's something to think about. Okay, this week I want to know, how are you keeping the writing fun? No new patrons this week, but a huge thank you to all of our current patrons. We really do appreciate the support. Patrons get early access to episodes, exclusive behind-the-scenes access to our off-air banter, as well as the warm, fuzzy feeling of supporting the podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so for just £3 a month at patreon.com forward slash unstoppable authors and also as promised we are adding some new benefits starting in february we are going to be doing some uh, writing sprints with our patrons Uh, we're going to have a session uh, once a month on zoom uh, which we have affectionately called uh, sprints and giggles um so if if you get the uh the joke there um give us a like on social media and come and join the patreon and we will have some sprints and giggles um it's going to be in uh, on a wednesday evening the middle of february we will announce the date formally in a couple of days it would also be really great if you could take a moment to share this episode on social media grab a screenshot share it directly from your podcast platform or even take a selfie Just remember to tag us so that we can share it too. It means so much to hear from our listeners and to know that you enjoy the show. And now, without further ado, let's get into the interview with Becca Syme. Today I'm talking with Becca Syme. She's a Gallup Certified Strengths Coach with a Master's Degree in Transformational Leadership and 14 years of experience in success coaching with writers, organisations and individuals in communications, strategy, systems and self-leadership. 
She teaches the popular Write Better Faster course and does Strengths for Writers coaching. She lives in a ski town in Montana where it's always winter and never Christmas, and she sometimes writes mystery novels. Hi, Becca, and welcome to Unstoppable Authors. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I have to say that always winter and never Christmas line is like the best (laughs) C.S. Lewis line ever, and I think I use it every time because Bozeman... (laughs) We get so much snow per ca- like per day, like in the winter, it's insane. Like yeah. so much snow. The origins of this podcast, you may not know, it was originally the Great Western Woods World Building Podcast. Oh. So it's the roots are in Narnia. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> so um, if you could start us off by telling me a bit about how you got started on this crazy author journey. Yeah, I was a fan fiction writer as like a kid, right? So um, my very first memories of storytelling at all are of trying to make sense of the fact that we weren't living in a fantasy world, I guess, right? Like, because I was like, oh, I'm in my head all the time. Everything feels, uh, you know, so like the fictional world feels so real to me. And so I would just write like, new kids on the block fan fiction or like NBA basketball fan fiction where I was like a basketball player for some reason. I don't know why. Um, or like, you know, crazy stuff like that. And I think I was so interested in storytelling and fictional worlds that I just couldn't like, I always knew I wanted to be a writer from a very young age. Like, I think a lot of us have that feeling. Um, but I was really surprised when I went, I did a part of an MFA when I graduated um, from undergrad and I was really surprised at how little I felt like I was doing storytelling when I was being trained as a fiction writer, right? Like it was, it was very in form and function and not a lot in fun, Mm -hmm. (laughs) if that makes sense. Uh, and so I stopped that and just decided to go write novels. And I wrote my first full length novel, very, quite young. Um, and then I just kind of never stopped since then. I just feel like I just want to keep writing for forever. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of my origins as an author was really fun, I guess, in storytelling. Yeah. Um, but you took a detour. I guess mm-hmm. um, your yeah. your other professional life is uh, is very different. Do you want to tell me a bit? Yeah, that? yeah. Um, when I decided not to do the MFA because I did essentially I didn't want to teach creative writing, and that's really what the MFA was preparing me for was to teach to be a creative writing teacher. Um, and I didn't want to do that, so I went to grad school and uh, and I started getting really interested in because of the program I was in. Um, in in industrial and organizational psychology and how we produce success in people uh, because I took the strengths test. And this is really sort of a a seminal moment in my life where I had grown up with a family who was sort of all one way. I have a sister and um, mom and dad, and they're all very similar to each other. And then I was like the outlier in the family. And so I always felt like well, I'm just not going to have success. Like I'm just not going to be successful because the way they were successful was very different. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I did the strengths test and got coached as part of my grad school entrance, it was like the heavens opened and all of us, because I was like, you mean my whole life I've been trying to be somebody else. And if I would just be myself, I would be successful. (laughs) What the crack is that about? Like I could not... (laughs) I could not believe that I hadn't heard about this before, about the fact that everybody's path to success is different. And I got obsessed and by obsessed, I mean, like I ate, slept, breathed, drank and discussed strengths nonstop for just like ever since then, I feel like, um, because it was such a life-changing moment for me to realize that just because I couldn't do things the way that my parents did, didn't mean that I couldn't still be successful Um, and, and I, I feel like the reason that I went in that direction was really because of that personal experience that I'd had. I didn't really have an interest in it before that, um, other than just like continuing to not be able to do what I felt like I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's kind of how I got into that trajectory. And then I just 
kept going in that way. And because I was so obsessed with it, I feel like I acquired a lot of information and knowledge about it really quickly. And then I was able to start working with people in that. Cause I was just so passionate, like a little bit obsessive, <laughs> not a little, a lot. Let's be honest. Yeah. yeah. I it's, it's been life-changing for me as well to do my strengths and, and learn all about it. And yeah, I think we're surrounded, aren't we, by messages of success that are centered on sort of competition and mm-hmm. discipline. And so it looks like that's the only way. And mm-hmm. so to find out that that's not true, yeah, it suddenly opens a whole lot of possibilities up, doesn't it? Especially for writers. I think like, I think it's helpful for any profession ever. Um, but I especially see the biggest seismic shifts in writers because so often we're trying to make ourselves do things in a way that's actually stifling the capacity that we really have because creativity is so different from other jobs. Like when you have a creative job, you have to really look at how your particular creativity is formed inside of you. Mm-hmm. And not everybody is a factory. So some, some people are, and that's awesome for them, but when you're not a factory, so you don't work well in factory situations, then you have to think about how do I function differently and what do I need to be creative? Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is really the more important question we can ask than like, what did somebody else do to be successful? What does their trajectory look like? How did they organize their day? It's like, well, that's an interesting piece of information, but unless you are more like them, then it's not going to help you. And Mm -hmm. I think the thing that blew my mind the most was when I learned about both the way that nonfiction books are written and the way that research methodology happens. Mm -hmm. Like research methodology essentially allows for you to ignore 40% of the data completely Mm -hmm. because the median is the, it's an acceptable metric for you to have constant amounts of outliers in your research and then to explain them away by basically saying, well, there are, there are out extenuating circumstances or outlier situations. So like when someone's writing a nonfiction book about, let's say habit formation, and they're like, well, most of the people that I coach have a 21 day habit formation, you know, like trajectory, I'm going to write a book that says all habits are formed in 21 days. And Becca comes along and is like, Oh no, they're not sweetie. (laughs) Like that just does, that's not the truth. So it is true for some people. Absolutely. But it's not true for everyone. And this is literally the reason I do question the premise as a practice Mm -hmm. is because if you can understand how things are formulated and realize why people do what they do, all of a sudden you have more control over your choices and more control over your future Mm. because you're no longer beholden to, well, this is how this is created. And I don't know that. So I'm just going to believe what they say and then try and force myself into that mold. When let's say for habit creation, um, the, People who study behavioral science and habit creation know that there are the reason that outliers happen in those studies is because there are different patterns. So like it might take you 200 days to form a habit instead of 21. You might never be able to form a habit in that particular way because there are systemic reasons that are keeping you from that habitual behavior. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know that, then you're going to hit your head against the wall, constantly feeling like a failure and trying to force yourself to do something that you're literally not capable of doing. So Mm -hmm. why even try to force yourself to do it? Like (laughs) that doesn't make any sense to me. So anyway, that's, that's why I get into what I get into is because there's so much that people don't know Mm -hmm. about how these things are formulated. And I just want to Like, I literally just want to question the premise of everything with everyone all the time, just to Mm -hmm. give people some freedom. Yeah, absolutely. So um, let's talk about your nonfiction books uh, for writers, the Dear Writer series. What prompted you to start publishing nonfiction? Um, I didn't actually want to write any nonfiction at all. I felt like um, because what I do is so customized, 
I just felt like it was not going to be possible for me to write a book because then I would fall into the same trap that like other people who have written nonfiction books fall into, which is my book isn't going to help everybody. So why do it? Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm very much like, I don't, I don't like leaving people behind when we, when we do something. So like, I prefer customization completely. And I could not imagine a way to write a nonfiction book that would actually be usable or helpful to everybody who picked it up. Mm-hmm. Cause I didn't want to fall into the trap of like, give them the product that I use or the process that I use, and then leave them to assume that it should work for them and they're idiots and lazy if they can't, because of course that's not true. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I had to really struggle with that for some time of like, how do I write a nonfiction book where I can share the larger lessons that we're learning and coaching? Cause by that time we had coached so many thousands of people as a company, uh, thousands of writers that I'm like, oh, there are patterns that are very clear here, but they're not patterns that are like, there's one type of writer. And then I'm going to write to that type. It was more like, let's say there's 25 different types of writers and I want to write something for everybody. So I have to write to the different types of people. And that's kind of how my nonfiction ended up coming about was when I realized that I could basically do what amounted to little mini case studies Mm -hmm. in each chapter and not have anything to say. So that's the one downside of my books is that I'm not trying to say only one thing to every single writer, right? Like I'm trying Mm -hmm. to talk to all the writers out there individually Um, And that's a very, very hard nuance balance to strike, I think, as a nonfiction writer. Um, And that's also why there's more than one book, because I knew after I released the first book that that wasn't going to be enough, that there were more things that needed to be said. Um, And in, in ways where there's sort of a theme, like there's a little bit of a theme to each one of the major three um, books. And then of course the burnout and the writer's block have a theme naturally, but um, but yeah, the nonfiction books were not ever on my radar and I resisted it for a long time. Cause I just didn't want to be one of those people mm-hmm. who wrote a book that only half of the people would ever be able to utilize. Um, like that just wasn't, I didn't have a desire to do that. So, um, it was quite a weird journey, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it was a worthwhile one. Cause where we got to, I felt like I could create a product, um, that everyone who read it would be able to get something out of the book that would be like seismic for them yeah so what was the the catalyst then what was the final thing that made you see that you could do it and and got you over that threshold like what I think happens with me a lot it was a conversation with one person where they asked me a question in just the right way that I realized because I had I can't remember who it was that I was coaching but I remember the conversation Mm -hmm. because I had said I think I have had this conversation with 10 people in the last two days. And she said, it would be great if you could just write that conversation down and then like, give it to all of us. And then I could give it to all of my friends. And I think it was about the social media metrics uh, that we were talking about. I can't remember who it was though, but I remember the conversation because I was like, oh, that's how I could write a book is Mm -hmm. just to take Cause what happens when I coach, especially at that time, I was doing 12 hours of coaching a day. And so like, I would see 12 new authors back to back for seven days a week, sometimes, um, it, because our classes go in pockets, right? Like we do a mm-hmm. class every other month. So I would have like four or five weeks in a row where I would have 10 to 12 hour days, just back to back. So like, I was literally having the exact same conversation sometimes four and five times in a row. And once I realized how much of a pattern that was, then I started making notes to myself about those for like blog posts or whatever. So I already had all of these notes that I had been making for posts. And when she made that comment, she's like, well, can't you just write a book? And I was like, Oh, I, I mean, I guess I could, if if I was going to write that book. (laughs) Um, And so being able to see the patterns on such a large level, I think was what really was the catalyst that I could, that I was doing such a high volume of coaching and then, but seeing the same problems in like every other person. Mm -hmm. And that was like, oh, I can do this. I can make this work. Yeah. 
So, I mean, the the title of that first book, Dear I See You Need to Quit, is is controversial. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I actually heard an author on a stage once in a in a giant conference tell say, but but not like that book that's telling you to quit. You shouldn't quit. No one should quit. And she kind of went off on this little mini diatribe about it for a second. And I was like, oh, well, you've never read the book though, because that's not at all what I'm doing. And in fact, like I totally knew that it would be controversial when I published it, but I also didn't want to give it a title that felt like it was saying, this is what's inside the book. Mm-hmm. because the the topics that are inside the book are so varied and different. And I feel like um, titling it something that would be like, um, you know, tales from a writing coach or something like that would be like, nobody's going to buy that book. Like that mm-hmm. just sounds pedantic. Um, and so I would say, and I apologize if anybody has that title, <laughs> it may not be pedantic to you, but it, it would feel pedantic to me. And I was talking with one of my coaches at the time. And I was like, well, what I, she's like, what are you trying to say in the book? Cause they would throw out and my marketing manager as well. She was like, call it this like seven figure success or something like that. And I was like, oh no, like I definitely can't. Cause I can't promise people that kind of, you know, like success. I could never do that. I mean, not just like, it wouldn't be possible for me to promise that and deliver on it. So I wouldn't want to do that because that's not what the theory is about, right? Like it's not about how much money you make or what you sell. It's about you as an individual. And so I was like, it has to be individual focused. And when the words came out of my mouth and I said, you need to quit. I was like, that is it. Because that's what I say to people all the time. It's those words. And she's like, well, that's not a good enough keyword, Becca. And I'm like, okay, then we'll add dear writer at the beginning. She's like, it has to have author or writer somewhere. And I'm like, fine, dear writer, you need to quit. And then I was like, as soon as I said it out loud, I'm like that that's it. That's the title. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so yeah, that was, that was a very, uh, tongue in cheek because of course I'm saying you need to quit all these things so that you can write more Mm -hmm. and better, better, faster. Um, but what I'm not saying is you need to quit writing. And it's funny because there are some reviews on the book that say, and I think, I, I don't think they really did quit writing, but there's one particular review that's like, well, congratulations, I quit writing. <laughs> and I was like, well, I don't think you read the book first of all, cause then you wouldn't have commented like that. But second of all, if you did quit after reading that book, then you needed to quit. Because Mm -hmm. if you can't quit other things in order to make this easier for yourself, and it really is that painful and difficult that you just can't continue, then yeah, you need to quit. I mean, Mm -hmm. like we need to normalize strategic quitting for people. And if that's not where they're at, then I don't want to force them to write if they don't want to write, but I also, am not going to tell them to quit if they shouldn't. So Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a title. It, I do not title my stuff, so it's easy to understand. Or like, I just I've never been good at that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, you talked a bit there about the intensity of the coaching that you're doing. Um, so you you speak to a lot of authors. Um, what is the biggest issue that you see in the author community at the moment? I mean, the pandemic fatigue right now is just intense and not everyone is calling it burnout or in burnout. Um, but the fatigue is intense. Like a lot of people are struggling with, I'm not as excited about writing as I used to be. The story ideas aren't coming the way that they were. I'm not writing as much as I want to, but not in a way that feels normal, like in a way that feels very 2022 instead of, um, you know like pre pre COVID. Um, but yeah, that's definitely the biggest deal. And actually we're reading this book on the Patreon right now called 4,000 weeks. That is maybe the only productivity book that I've ever read that I think everyone should read, um, regardless of whether they are super productive or not. Um, because it's just, it is, it's going to be seismic, I think, and seminal for the, for the productivity arena, there's been this obsession like this, 
growing and frantic obsession with writing more and faster and better for so many years. Like when I first started teaching productivity in 2013 or 2014, 2014, I think it was, um, it was like, it felt like it was growing already. Mm -hmm. And then the more crowded the market got and the more people started feeling like I can do this too. I can make six figures or seven figures too. It's like, it started to grow and grow and grow and grow and get worse. Mm -hmm. And what happens is there's only so much of that, that we can stand on an individual level before it breaks us. And so one of the reasons that I like this book so much is because of the 4,000 weeks, because I think it addresses the problem that we're having where the combination of the fear of missing out on the industry and like the fear of missing out on money um, or audience or clout or whatever it is. And also coupled with all of the yuck that's going on with the pandemic, it's like, it's too much for some of us and people are not, not functioning. Um, And so that's really what I think is the biggest problem right now is that we're not just calling it what it is and accepting it and dealing with it. And we're still trying to operate in this pre-COVID level of like, I refuse to change my vision of the future. And I refuse to acknowledge that everything is different now. And so I'm just going to keep trying to pretend like nothing has changed. Um, Mm. And, and I think that's, yeah, again, it's a very, that's a very generic thing. Cause I think the coupled up with that is all of this stuff with sales being weird for some people and Amazon algorithms changing. And when the privacy stuff changed, it literally is like the uncertainty and Mm -hmm. the unrealistic expectations on everyone's plate right now Mm -hmm. um, are causing just a lot of stress. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I don't know, could it, the the sort of that trying to operate on pre-COVID level is maybe a kind of coping mechanism, Mm -hmm. but it's horribly backfiring on people. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm happy to see that more and more people are talking about it. Like there was kind of this um, viral stuff that went around about languishing in pandemic fatigue um, not long ago. And so I was glad to see that conversation start up, Mm -hmm. but part of what then has to happen is you know, once you realize that things aren't going back to the way that they were before, and we have to adjust our expectations about what the future might be like is then trying to find the joy and the excitement about what might be different now, or how we might be able to function Mm -hmm. in a world that feels so unlike what it felt like two years ago. Mm -hmm. And so being able to look at without saying, I'm glad this happened. Cause that feels like it's hard to separate for some people, mm. but without saying, I'm glad this happened. How can I find some kind of positive future for myself, some kind of hopefulness, some kind of release, some kind of support, like, how can I find those things for myself? And I'm glad that people are thinking and talking about it because that's what it's going to take to get us to the other side. I yeah. Think. Yeah. So, I mean, you did sort of touch on the the fact that this was kind of coming like you spotted the signs in like 2014 do you think that it was inevitable anyway and would have happened yeah. even without the pandemic <laughs> oh yes like in fact when I first wrote the burnout book I talked about how I'd been at a big national conference and I had seen burnout like the the evidence of the beginnings of burnout on everybody's faces and in like 2018 mm. people were just like it was coming regardless because the frantic and freneticness of the industry and the FOMO that we have that fear of missing out, we do not handle FOMO. Well, again, it's one of the reasons I think that 4,000 weeks is so important that acknowledgement that we have limitations and the acknowledgement that reality exists and you can't just wish your way out of it. And the acknowledgement that not everyone is going to get what they want out of life like that acknowledgement should be freeing on some level because then it's like, oh, so I'm not like wrong or broken. Mm. It's just that I haven't hit that place yet. And it still could potentially be in front of me, but I need to not get lost in the fact that it hasn't happened. Mm. That was coming anyway, because the industry has been growing at such a level that is like, there's the bubble 
of the original kind of everyone trying to get on in on the gold rush, which is going to pop. Um, and then we'll have that normalization that happens after the bubble pops. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that at some point it still is going to hit us in a major way um, as an industry that we're just not able to keep up with all the things that we're supposed to be doing. And we're not able to have the success that we were promised on some level, no matter how many books we published, we're still not making whatever kind of money we're supposed to be making, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and nothing we can do can change that. And there, there's going to be some kind of an individual reckoning at some point. And it's been coming since the gold rush started um, in the mm-hmm. early, like in the mid two thousands. So yeah, it's, it's definitely would have come anyway. COVID has exacerbated it a little bit, but (laughs) it was on its way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's try and pick up the tone. Yes. Like I apologize for the doom and gloom very much, but. (laughs) What can we do about it? What can individual authors do to protect themselves to, um, yeah, and to get that future that they want for themselves? Yeah, I'm a huge fan of, of gamification when it comes to um, our the way that we the way that we live and learn as authors. Um, if we can deconstruct the stakes, like somehow thinking if I don't get in on the money right now that I'm never going to be able to get in on it, that raises the stakes too much. And we all know what happens when you raise stakes, you get caught in dilemmas. And when you get caught in dilemmas, you don't take any action and it's just painful until the black moment. (laughs) So like we want to lower the stakes as much as humanly possible and allow ourselves to try and fail because the, the industry, even though it is possible in theory, it's possible for anyone to break out. It's possible for anyone to make six figures or seven figures, but it is not going to happen for everyone. Like it's Mm -hmm. possible for anyone, but it's not possible for everyone. And so acknowledging that if I'm not selling, if I'm releasing poorly, it may literally not be because I'm a failure. It may not be because I suck. It may not be for all, because I'm not trying hard enough or I'm not doing enough things. It might be because 98.6% of books or 96.8 or whatever it is. I can't ever remember the numbers, but more than 95% of books don't sell. Like they just don't sell. And all you have to do is look at the numbers of the Amazon store and see that only the top 100,000 books sell more than one copy a day um, to know that that's the case. Like it, it does not take a lot of math to do that. Um, but I think it's also can be really freeing to acknowledge that most books don't sell because it lowers the stakes and it increases your odds of being able to gamify the situation, which means now if I don't count on this being true, then I am able to experiment. It's why we take risks in games that we may not take in real life because the Mm -hmm. stakes are lower. So if we can do more on the side of gamification, we're going to talk more about this in the coming year, um, because it absolutely is essential to the way that we approach our careers as authors, because it is not a predictive economy as an industry. It is not predictive that if you put in the hours, you are going to get paid. It is not reliable. It is more like Vegas than it is like Wall Street. Mm -hmm. So you really have to be conscious of the fact that you are already in a gamified situation. It's just that we raise the stakes because we think we're going to miss out on something. You've already missed out on the gold rush. The gold rush is over but the industry is not going anywhere. And the industry is now, especially of indie publishing is now more stable. Mm -hmm. And so it is going to be more important for us to be able to take chances and to iterate and to learn and to grow rather than seeing it as that fear of missing out where we hold things so tightly that we're just not able to allow ourselves to have a release that doesn't work without expecting that we've done something wrong. Mm -hmm. Sometimes releases don't work and it has nothing to do with you and it has nothing to do with your book um, other than maybe your marketing packaging, but sometimes things just don't sell. And it's, it's hard to, it's hard to accept that sometimes because it feels so arbitrary, but 
that by nature, this industry is arbitrary. It's set by large number patterns, which are only predictable in hindsight. And this is the other piece that I think we really need to understand is you can only predict buying patterns when they've already happened. (laughs) You can't predict them in the future. Mm -hmm. And I, like I said, I just think that it's so important for us to have this information, to know what's really going on and to be able to arm ourselves with that attitude or that mindset of like, I'm going to try to learn and grow and experiment. And I'm not going to expect that I only have a certain number of chances or I only, or whatever, like, no, you have decades of career in front of you. You can afford to make some mistakes as long as you learn from them Mm -hmm. and then just continue to go forward and go forward and go forward. You're not missing anything right now. We've already missed it. (laughs) Like we missed the gold rush. It's done. Now it's an industry and then you just have to break in. Yeah. Um, what you said about it being more like Vegas than Wall Street really struck a chord and it made me think like the house always wins and Amazon's the house. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That is, (laughs) that is accurate. And by nature, that is what will happen. I don't think that it means we shouldn't still play, right? Mm -hmm. Like I want to see as many people play as possible. Um, I just want to make sure that we are not kneecapping ourselves from the start by the way that we approach it with the stakes so high Mm -hmm. that somehow we're assuming if I don't do this right now, if I don't do this right now, that's what ends up increasing the pressure sometimes to the point where we lose our creativity. Um, We need to find another way to bring stability into our lives that is not reliant on this Mm -hmm. because this is not stable. Mm -hmm. It's not stable. So the stability needs to come from somewhere else, unless again, you're an outlier in that super tippy top range where you're making seven figures. And then that is usually evidence of a more stable platform. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but for an awful lot of us who are making under six figures, like this is not a stable place to look. And so we always want to have some kind of an out if possible. And again, there's always exceptions. So I always have to be cautious. If you're an exception, it's okay to disagree with me. You can question the premise of Becca just as easily as you can question the premise of anybody else. I'm fine with that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think what we've seen as well, especially over the last two years is that even people who looked like they were very stable, people with very good incomes and very good you know, a big back catalog can suddenly see a downturn and with mm-hmm. no explanation, it's, yeah. it's painfully arbitrary sometimes. Yeah, it really is. And I don't, I don't think that it's, I don't think that it's a downside that it's arbitrary because even though it, it definitely is less secure for writers, I think it's also part of what makes the industry so interesting to be a part of, Mm -hmm. especially for those of us who really like change and we like adapting and we like pivoting and different things like new and different, Mm -hmm. um, that it can be beneficial for us to have not too much security because that means like, that's what happens when you have a really high demand and an evolving uh, like an evolving platform mm. is like an industry, an evolving industry is that when it grows and changes, it should almost feel like a new place. Mm. And I think that's actually good for us and good for the readers. I mean, good for us emotionally. Sometimes it's not great for us financially, but, <laughs> um, and, and that's, you know, like, that's just sort of the essential pain of mm. being a writer. What about for those of us that don't have those new and different, you know, urges, talents. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that definitely, like I've seen a lot of people who just sort of refuse to adapt to the way that, that things are. And that's also in the adoption curve, um, idea adoption curve. There's always that 15% on the right-hand side who are the late adopters and laggards, um, who are just not going to, 
adapt as quickly. And then I would find the most secure places that you absolutely can find. And honestly, that's part of what happens when you have late adopters is that they generally find the more secure places and are not as much on the cutting edge and out on the frontier side. Mm -hmm. Um, But they tend to be more attracted to the places that are stable and secure. So like, instead of writing the brand new, you know, um, monster milking, you know, whatever stuff, um, they're going to be writing like the paranormal romance shifters that everybody has been writing for years and that they know is just going to sell. And then they aren't as worried about like trying to adapt to every single curve and turn that comes. Mm -hmm. Um, and that can be a much more stable place sometimes also when you're just slowly building that fan base to a place where it will support more and more and more and more. Mm -hmm. And then you're keeping that fan base happy by doing what they want you to do. Mm -hmm. Um, so in some ways there are definitely more stable and secure pockets of the industry. If you can, find them again, they're still, they're still not promisable. Like I can't promise that, that any one person could find those places, Mm -hmm. but we definitely do see that it's possible to find those places. Um, it just tends to not be as trendy or, um, like I said, the frontier edge Mm. type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what are some of the things that, um, we can do on a sort of day-to-day level to recover from this burnout and this fatigue that we're going through? I mean, sleep is huge. And some of us don't sleep because we end up getting into, I just talked about this in the quick cast this week about um, nighttime revenge procrastination. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're like, we're so angry that we have to get up and do tomorrow, whatever we have to do. And so we do this, like, I'm going to stay up as late as humanly possible and make myself pay for it tomorrow morning, watching TikTok or, you know, like doing something that feels like this is me time, but then we're also having to still pay the consequences for it. And it's not going to keep us from having to go to the awful day job or wake up and dress the kids or clean the house or do whatever it is that we're mad about having to do. Mm. Um, And so being conscious of that nighttime revenge procrastination tendency that we have because the sleep would always be better. Like it's always better to sleep than be on TikTok. And I know some of you are going to argue with me, but it's always better to sleep just from a perspective of like how your, how your body is rejuvenated by sleep. And also the studies that are coming out now in like the psychology of sleep are telling us that sleep may be the absolute most important thing that you can do. And if you are not, obviously, if you have insomnia, you need to see a doctor, but -hmm. if you don't have insomnia and you just are not sleeping well, that's the very first thing that I would address is being able to sleep well and as restfully as possible. And some of you need to go to the doctor because you need to get addressed the reasons that you're not sleeping. And it is going to make you pay consequences in a very short term in a way that won't be happy. Um, mm-hmm. So I highly recommend addressing that first. And, and the things that I would say for us to do are not popular things. Nobody wants be- to hear Becca say, you should be moving your body and you should be sleeping more because what they want is tell me the six steps that are just going to make me have everything I want, Becca. <laughs> And so what I would say is read 4,000 weeks. That's step one, sleep more, (laughs) sleep more than you are, eat food that benefits your body in some way, like whatever, everybody's body's different, but eat food that benefits your body, please drink water. Like, honestly, the things that I would say are there's such basic things, but those are often the first things to go because it feels like that's too much work mm-hmm. for me to do, right? To like turn off TikTok because I have such a dopamine hit when I turn TikTok on that my brain wants that all the time. And I would say, right, but that's called addiction. And so if you break the addiction, then that pain will be short lived, whereas the pain of not sleeping will be longer lived. Mm-hmm. Yeah um talk to me about energy pennies as well the accumulation of (laughs) 
Yeah. So, um, energy pennies, because, um, I was talking about this before I had heard about spoons and I really wish that I had heard about spoons before, um, before I started talking about this. Cause now in my head, I always feel bad about not using spoon language. Um, but I, I really do think that it's a slightly different concept also, because I'm not just talking about, um, like energy in a measurable way in terms of like, um, like how many spoons do I have? For me, it's more about the fact that everything that we do costs us a penny or gives us a penny. And it might be more than one penny of energy. And that means every decision that we make. So it's like a micro level of that kind of energy um, consumption. Every decision that I make, if I wake up in the morning and I can't decide between coffee and tea, which that should be an easy choice. Everyone, the answer is always tea. I'm sorry. (laughs) I love you all, but it's never coffee. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) Um, I apologize to all the coffee lovers that I just offended. But, um, so if you're trying to decide between those two things and you keep equivocating back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, then you're spending pennies every time you try to make that decision and question yourself. And again, that's not a big deal. If you have a giant reserve of pennies, like a a ton of energy saved up and stored, it -hmm. is a bigger deal when you don't have a lot. And so every single thing that you do takes or gives, takes or gives, takes or gives. And so when I talk about energy pennies in relationship to burnout recovery, specifically, it's you make a certain number by just sleeping and eating and talking to people and taking care of yourself, like having hygiene, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there are activities that you can do to make pennies for yourself. So you can fill this well that has been depleted by the pandemic or depleted by burnout, you know, factors. Um, And so when you do things that bring pennies into your bank so that you can spend them later, then it's like you're shoring up against future times when you need to expend more energy than you're making essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm such a huge fan of everything that you do can't just be spending. Like you can't continue to spend and spend and spend and spend and never take in and still expect to function. Mm -hmm. So if you do that at some point, you will burn out and you will not be able to function. And then you have to go through burnout recovery, which is sometimes like a six month process. It is Mm -hmm. not fun. If you can avoid it, I highly recommend it. (laughs) Um, Cause I'm in it right now and it's the worst. (laughs) I mean, it's not the absolute worst, but it's worse. Um, So the consumption of pennies happens naturally. And then when I don't do any activities that make pennies for me, this is why, and I'll just use TikTok as an example, not to pick on TikTok. I love TikTok. Um, but to use that as an example, it reaches a point where it's no longer making pennies for me. It's only spending. So maybe at the very beginning when I was starting to scroll videos, I was making pennies And now I'm just keeping myself from making more because I'm staying up and staying up and staying up and not just shutting it down and going to bed. Mm -hmm. So being conscious of that place where this is no longer making me energy, it's now costing me. And I would like to get us to stop things that only cost us energy that aren't necessary to be done. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just a little bit more consciousness, I think, about what gives and takes from us than we may have had before. Yeah. So how, how can we figure that out? How can we work out what is giving us energy and taking it away? Cause sometimes it's, we think something is good for us and then it's not. <laughs> right. Like uh, usually that requires a little bit of objectiveness. So sometimes it might require talking to someone about it and hearing how you reference the, the discussions. Sometimes it's as easy as just being conscious in the moment of, do I feel better or do I feel less drained than I did when I started doing this, whatever it was. Um, but there are some activities like sleep, like relationship, um, positive relationship pennies, like gratitude, like compliments, like, um, intimate contact, like all of these things that provide us with pennies regardless. And then again, there are always exceptions to the rule, but, um, that provide us with pennies 
that we don't always think about doing because it feels like, but it can't possibly be that easy for a lot of writers. Reading is an energy penny producing activity and watching something like watching Netflix might be for a while. And then it just becomes nighttime revenge procrastination. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so if it's taking away from an activity that would be giving me more pennies, and I have the capacity to force myself to switch. So like stopping binging Netflix so that I can go clean my room and do my laundry. It may not feel like a lot of fun, but then what I'm not doing later is I'm not having all the penny deduction or spending when I'm walking through my bedroom because I feel like, Oh, it's so messy in here. I wish I could just clean this up. I wish I could clean this up. So some of it is definitely about anticipating what's going to drain us and trying to shore up against draining. Mm -hmm. Um, but I feel like the, what's the word I'm looking for? The individualized energy penny consumption or exchange is so important. Like it is so individualized. It'll be different for everyone. Mm -hmm. So for some of us, like if you're high achiever, for instance, in the strengths, in the Clifton strengths, um, you might get energy pennies by checking things off of lists and doing small tasks that have been sitting around and not allowing you to do them. Uh, you might get energy pennies from being busy, <laughs> like whereas somebody <laughs> else might get energy pennies from laying around. Yeah. <laughs> like um, you might get energy pennies from not answering texts. You might get energy pennies from seeing your friends or from seeing total strangers. Like, I think it's different for everybody. The first place I always suggest if you've taken the Clifton strengths already is to go and look at your report, like your full 34 report of your Clifton strengths assessment and look at all the things that say you will likely, or you might that you agree with, and then do all of those things. Mm -hmm. So if you're a person who loves to read and take in information, then that's your energy penny production activity. Go and do those things. Sometimes, even if you don't feel like it's going to make it better, um, just especially in burnout, sometimes you don't feel like it'll be better if you do that. But, mm -hmm. um, but so much of it is about little self-care stuff. Hmm. And not necessarily things like eating chocolate and laying on the couch. Although for some people that is energy penny producing, but sometimes it's cleaning the house and doing the laundry or taking a shower or calling a friend when you don't want to, or something like that, where you get filled up, even though there's the barrier to entry of the hmm. discussion. I just did my taxes last night <laughs> and I feel so energized this morning, even though I have been putting that off for so long because I just hate financials, but I finally was like, you know what? It's going to make me feel better tomorrow if I do this. And sure enough, I woke up and I'm like, oh, I have all the energy pennies in the world because my taxes are done. <laughs> like, yeah, sometimes taxes produce energy pennies only when they're finished though. Let's be honest. Yeah. 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 But you kind of, you get like a double whammy, don't you? Because doing the thing, you know, that, that you've been putting off and that's been sort of sucking energy from you in the act of delaying when yeah. you do it you it's almost like you get double the pennies back because yeah you feel that satisfaction yeah. as well of, oh I did the thing so right and sometimes there are the extenuating circumstances right like those of us who are diagnosed ADHD or ADD for instance will have that um, putting things off until the pressure forces you to do them that is um, diagnosable, right? Whereas some of us just have the regular old, I just procrastinate stuff and it's fine because I'll do it eventually. And it doesn't cause me as much anxiety. Whereas like, if you have ADHD, sometimes you can get so much anxiety from those situations that it's actually better to be like under a doctor's care about it rather than just mm -hmm. like whatever you read on the internet or whatever Becca says, right? Because <laughs> you need an actual doctor to talk to you about that stuff, but I am not that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, obviously your, um, your book about quitting is not about quitting writing. Nice. Um, so, but if you could sort of encapsulate, I guess the, the message of that book, what, what would you say to an author who thinks they want to quit? Mm. So, 
usually what makes us want to quit is that we're doing it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Like we're trying to make it all about money when that's not why, why we started writing or vice versa. Um, we're trying to make ourselves love it when we really primarily are in it for the money. Like so often it's the things that we let ourselves believe that we should do. And again, that should word is a bad word, right? Mm-hmm. But it's the things we allow ourselves to believe we should be doing that are keeping us from doing it the way that we actually like the way that would be aligned for us rather mm-hmm. than what someone else did or how someone else was successful or what some very well-meaning and kind expert person who was trying to be helpful told me should happen because of how they did it or what they think is true. Um, and so a lot of what happens in that particular book is about questioning the premise of the should, mm-hmm. like trying to get underneath of who would this really work for? Like who really needs to be on social media? Who really needs to go to author signing events? Who really needs to, et cetera, et cetera. Like, is that actually something you need to put on yourself to do? Or is your expectation that was formed by very well-meaning people, but is your expectation potentially keeping you from doing it in a way that would fill you and make you happier? Mm. Because so often when people actually want to quit, it's because they're trying to make themselves fit a mold that they don't fit. And so if we would just find them a different mold, they'd be fine. I mean, that's what Write Better Faster is about. It's what Strengths for Writers Coaching is about. It's everything. It's you're probably just not doing it in a way that's aligned to you. And in a similar way to when your car tires are not aligned correctly, there's only so long you can drive a car that doesn't have aligned tires before it stops working. Mm -hmm. And so that's usually what I want to make sure people do first before they actually quit is read the book, listen to the quick cast videos, figure out if there's a different way that you could be doing things other than the way you're doing them based on how you're wired. And then if that's possible, often it's like, oh, well, I don't have to quit now because I could do that for forever. Right. That's the point, right? (laughs) Like that's what we want. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And it's that kind of the driving force behind you're doing it right and you're doing it wrong as well. Yeah. To other books mm-hmm. in the series. Yeah, I, I feel like it's just the, the you're doing it wrong book was a very specific discussion of the way that our brains talk to us mm-hmm. about how we are doing things wrong when often we're not, but they have been basically they have been programmed to do that because it was at one time helpful mm-hmm. and now it's no longer helpful. And so that you're doing it wrong is not that the writer's actually doing it wrong. It's that our brain is trying to get us to do something that's not right. Mm -hmm. And then the, you're doing it right is more about like when I'm doing it right and it's not working or when I'm doing it wrong and it's not working, um, what might I need to change in order to do it differently? So those three books kind of go together Mm -hmm. and then the other two, the burnout and the writer's block kind of go together. Mm -hmm. So let's turn to the positive. Um, Yes. What signs are there, do you think, uh, for a brighter future for writers? I mean, I think it's a pretty bright future that regardless of the fact that we're out of the gold rush, that people are still new people, like brand new writers are still able to make a lot of money. Um, So the fact that, yes, there definitely is a benefit to, um, there's a benefit to having a more stable, solid platform, just in terms of like the, what Joe Solari calls the cumulative advantage, right? Like where there is definitely something to the cumulative advantage, but also it is always, we hear stories of it constantly of people who have never released a book before, or people who've been releasing for a while and then have a series that takes off. Like there is no predictability to who is and is not going to have success. And I think that is a really positive thing because sometimes in very um, uh, established industries, like let's take the world of online selling, no one is ever going to topple Amazon unless the government does it, but no one is going to topple Amazon. It's not possible to build a bigger boat at this point Mm. um, than Amazon. So in an overly established or monopolized, if it is a monopoly, but, or or a monopolized industry, then it would not be possible for new people 
to be able to make money because that would be the opposite of that, what that industry does. Mm -hmm. So I do think that it's a positive thing that you can learn how to do this and do it well. I also personally think that it's a really positive thing that not everyone can be successful because it makes it a more of a game. Mm. Like, and I enjoy games a lot. Like mm. I love gamifying things. Um, and I'm a huge fan. If any of you are Jane McGonigal fans, uh, the super better concept, like I'm a huge fan of if it goes wrong, let's not just accept that it happened, but let's make it better than it ever could have been. Mm. And, and I feel like the future is a chance for us to all be super better together in terms of like, there are things that are broken in all of our platforms and all of our lives in the whole world. But I do think it's possible for us to build something better together in the future because no failure is the end. Like no failure is the last failure. There's always an opportunity for you to learn from whatever happened and to make success out of failure. And that whole adage about the masters are the people who failed more than the amateurs ever try. Mm. Like, I think that is a very encouraging thing because it means that if I can keep learning and growing and trying, then I do still have the potential for success in the future. There's nothing determinative about the fact that I haven't had success mm. already. And to me, that's the most hopeful thing that exists because if there is, if we have not yet lost the final battle, then there's always a future battle that we can win. And that is the most inspiring thing in the world for me. And I think it should be for all of us because there is no final no ever. It's always, there's a possibility of yes in the future. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Okay. So we always wrap up every conversation on this podcast with a, would you rather question? Mm. So um, I have a special one for you. Would you rather have unlimited time to read or unlimited time to coach writers? Oh, coach. Yeah, for sure. If, if the unlimited time came with unlimited capacity, because it is very, it is very tiring yeah. um, to do that. But if I had unlimited time to coach, I would prefer that in a heartbeat, just because the, the ability to spend 45 minutes with someone and see their life be different at the end of that 45 minutes is there is no better job for me personally on this earth than doing that. And before I was paid to do this, I was doing it for free everywhere that I could go. I mean, I was on the airplane coaching people because I just love seeing those tr moments where people transform into like the version of themselves that they could really be. Mm -hmm. It's the best thing that I've ever done. Um, and I think I would definitely like, I would miss the reading. <laughs> My <laughs> input would miss the reading. I may have to coach writers and have them read books to me while we're coaching, <laughs> but <laughs> But I would definitely choose coaching. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you very much. So yeah. could you just wrap up with uh, letting our listeners know where they can find out more about you and your books and your programs and coaching and everything? Yeah, the best place to go is the QuitCast, Q-U-I-T-C-A-S-T. And no, we're not going to convince you to quit writing. That's not <laughs> what it's about, as we've covered. Um, but on YouTube, uh, we're not on audio yet, although that has been my goal to get all of that stuff on audio, it's going to happen in 2022. It's just has to happen. Um, but that's our, our YouTube channel. Um, we release regular videos about just kind of alignment, success alignment for authors on the quick cast. And that's the best place to go and look for us. Cause then you can see, does the content resonate? Do you like it? And if it does, then all the information about how to do more is all there. Um, so definitely check out the quick cast. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was a blast. I really hope you enjoyed the interview. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure to speak to Becca and I hope that it's been really helpful for you all. I will share a link to the QuitCast in the show notes, so do check that out, uh, either in the notes on your podcast app or on our website, unstoppableauthors.com. I honestly can't recommend the QuitCast enough. It's been fantastic, especially the burnout series where Becca goes into so much depth um, about some of the things we've talked about today. Just a reminder of the question of the week. How are you keeping the writing fun? Uh, 
And remember that if you want to hear all the backstage stuff and get all of the other benefits, including joining us for Sprints and Giggles, you can join us over at patreon.com forward slash unstoppable authors. And please don't forget to share the podcast online and tag us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Unstoppable Authors. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Unstoppable Authors podcast. We'll be back next week with more of our tenacity and worldly wisdom. Don't forget to visit our website to get the show notes and heaps of helpful blog articles at unstoppableauthors.com. And join our guild of unstoppable authors and you will not only hear from us every week, but you will also get a free digital copy of my book, 30 Days of World Building. If you enjoyed the episode, please remember to subscribe and leave a review.